Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about films playing at the BYU's International Cinema. This is our third podcast of the fall semester 2020. My name is Marie-Laure Oscarson, Assistant Director of International Cinema, and I'm joined here today by Mark Yamada, co-director of IC and former IC co-director, Daryl Lee, who is now chair of the French and Italian department at BYU. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hello. This week, we're discussing Adam by Miriam Tuzani, a 2019 film that is featured in our Displaced at Home and Abroad, along with other titles like Buoyancy. This film was discussed by sociology professor Scott Saunders, and his remarks will be available on the IC website. And Fictree, a film from Ethiopia that played last week also. The other titles that complete this series are playing later this semester. We have two documentaries, Santiago Italia by Nani Moretti, The Cave from Ferra Fayad, and a feature film from Brazil, Ana Muelart's The Second Mother. So please look, look for those on our website or on our posters if you have one. Here's a warning. The film was streamed last week at IC, so we're going to talk about everything, and there might be some spoilers. So here is our warning. So Adam is a debut feature by director Miriam Tuzani, who is actually telling a personal story. Her family welcomed an unwed pregnant woman when she was younger. Um, the story takes place in Morocco, where our film director is from. And the family offered um, shelter and a place where to have her baby, very much like Alba in the film rescues pregnant Samia from the streets. In the context of Moroccan laws and society, and, and this happened still even a few years ago, I know that the law changed not long ago, but what do you know about the situation that Samia is in as an unwed uh, young woman who is pregnant? So... Um... Sexual intercourse outside of wedlock is uh, considered a sin and also criminal. And having children uh, is also, at least was, uh, considered a criminal offense in Morocco and much of the Middle East and North Africa region. The filmmaker, Tuzani, talks a little bit about this in some documents that I've seen where her family took in this uh, unwed pregnant woman who was about eight months along. And this would have been prior to 2004, and that's when the Family Code, or the Mudawana in North Africa, excuse me, in, in Morocco, changed. Um, and there is an important history here because uh, a terrorist attack that took place in Casablanca in about 2003 drew a lot of ire from uh, moderates in Morocco, and the king of the country, Mohammed VI, uh, took advantage of this moment to introduce these reforms to the family code. And that code moved towards greater emancipation for women and equality for women. And among the changes was some of the attitudes regarding adoption and the criminality of uh, unwed pregnancies. Nevertheless, there remain in Morocco a stigma attached, and it's inscribed in the civil status as well of children because while um, an adopted child could not lay, excuse me, a, a child born out of wedlock before could not claim some kind of identity because you, you can't establish paternity and, and therefore have some kind of social and civic identity in their cultural and, and civic system, you were not given a name. Uh, that has changed. The problem is, is that there's still sort of this hierarchy of, of civil status because uh, a child born out of wedlock will still have its name 
identified in an ID card. And so you can still tell when a child, a person, an individual in Moroccan society was born out of wedlock by that. So that inequality and some of the stigma remain. And also an adopted child, though it may have a place in society that's different, still there is a kind of lingering punishment uh, for birth mothers um, mm-hmm. and where they're, they're sort of forced to give up their babies because they know that the child will have a better life. It has no status and no place if it stays with the mother. The mother knows this. And an adopted child, meanwhile, is not going to have quite the same legal rights as a child born within wedlock, but still is better than remaining with the mother. And that's the dilemma at the heart of this, this uh, movie. Um, and I was quite taken by Mariam Tuzani's comments at the Toronto International Film Festival, where the film uh, was a selection in 2019, she was saying in a question and answer that this this actually occurred. And she has a sense that uh, Moroccans want to see these stories. They're trying to find ways of processing social issues and dilemmas like this. And art, film art in this case, has a very important role to play. And she believes, uh, and you see this, a kind of optimism built into this massive project of a film itself, that there is some hope to instigate change, as she says, for Moroccan society. So I'm deeply moved by this film, and I think that it will spark some kind of debate within Morocco, COVID notwithstanding. And so I'm kind of interested to see what some of the the, the outcomes of this will be at a, at a societal level. And talking about the society, we see in the film that Alba, the mother who welcomes Samia, the young pregnant woman, is is trying to keep the society outside of her home once she, she welcomes the, the young woman. She's saving her f- from the streets and, and danger as well. We see this metal curtain that she closes in front of her bakery. We're going to talk about food because food is very important in this film. And we see that society is a danger. We see it constantly as well with the threat of the neighbors finding out that there is this young pregnant woman and no one should know. People speak. We find as well a very human portrait of Samia. Samia is warm. When we see her at first going from door to door, asking people to let her in, she wants to work for them. She's a skilled hairdresser and she's looking for work at first. She's denied that because she's homeless, basically. And then when she goes from door to door, we see the love that she has in herself. And that love, that very warm love is actually changing Alba, who is who is grieving. So we see the portrait of this young woman who is condemned by society, who is in danger because of that condemnation. She could be put in prison because she's pregnant. But we see a very, very human portrait. And so, yes, this film hopefully will, will change hearts and people will look upon these young women as just there are children. I don't know if she's of school age, but we see some three girls walking the street and they're just so laughing lightly with each other. And we see Samia looking at them, sitting from her side of the street, pregnant, worried about the future. And it feels that there is this lightness that was taken away from her. Anyway, a very human portrait of, of her. Absolutely. I was I was very impressed with the, the acting in the film, which was quite naturalistic. Uh, Lubna Azabal, who plays Abla, is this experienced Belgian TV and film actress. Uh, she's of Moroccan and Spanish descent, and she plays key roles in films that, that come from the Arabic world. But this is an opportunity for her to tap into her roots in, in Morocco. So she's played 
roles that have her as a, as a Lebanese woman, a sister in Denis Villeneuve's devastating film Incendie. Mm-hmm. Another film, Body of Lies, the kind of adventure action post 9-11 film, mm-hmm. Us Versus Them, West and, and uh, the Arab World in a Ridley Scott film, that, that film with Leo DiCaprio and Russell Crowe. It's very Manichaean. And and it's, you know, it's it's sort of the sort of tension of that world. This is a completely different kind of a film. Uh, it's a counterpoint to those, the story of everyday lives of contemporary Moroccans and three women, three single women in one sense. You've got a little girl, mm-hmm. Warda. Uh, you've got yeah. this single uh, pregnant woman. But then really, Abla herself is single. She's uh, a widow. And they form this little compact, this little society. And, and it's quite moving to see. I was fascinated by the simplicity of the film techniques. And maybe you have some comments about this too, the the shot scale and the framing, and then you clearly were interested in the sound. I'd be interested in hearing what what you saw or what you heard. Okay, so about the sound, and I know Mark has comments about the close shots of of the faces. Yeah, um, thank you so much. Those are really great comments. And thanks, Daryl, for that context. I really like that this way in which you talked about the way the characters in some ways lack a sense of humanness, they lack a name, they lack kind of this legal designation outside of the home. And it seems like kind of what Mahilo was talking about, the, the way in which the film humanizes by really kind of focusing in on life in, in the home and, um, you know, the significance of the, of the title, which you don't really know what, what Adam has to do with anything. And finally you find out that it's about, in some ways, naming and the way in which the characters like you mentioned get have meaning by the, the relationships they develop with each other even though they're not necessarily related by blood but uh, going along with what Mahilo was mentioning the idea of, and, and you mentioned as well this the way in, uh, and I think it was in that same uh, interview that the director Miriam Tozani said she chose to use a lot of close-ups she chose kind of a camera distance that wasn't too far away but more, more kind of closely framed around the characters to really create the sense of intimacy of the home, to not create the sense that we're kind of looking from outside uh, from outside of the home into this world, to really kind of immerse us in that world and to kind of make the world itself kind of the center of the film. And so I really enjoyed that and the way that characters are framed. I know that the sound kind of was a, a key element to this as well. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that really struck me. All the sound was diegetic. So at the beginning, you know, it's the radio that Alba is listening to when she's baking. At night, when Samia is sleeping in the street, she knows this young woman is outside her window. It's the dogs barking, and then you hear men fighting, and you you feel the danger. You're inside the home. The home is very close. The, the home is very orderly as well. Do you remember when Alba was setting the table? Alba was setting the table so precisely. Everything was planned and i think it's like this in our in our life with our daughter everything is planned everything is controlled and maybe this is a, a direct reaction to the unimaginable that happened in this widow's life when she lost her husband he left as a casual thing it's it, something needed to be done at the port and then he never came home they brought back his body so maybe this is a reaction she's completely trying to control her environment and so the sound is constantly bringing back the outside world and the threat as well of the outside world so listening to this diegetic the diegetic sounds of the neighbors or what's happening in the street 
or what what we can hear on the radio, um, we realize that this story is not cut off from the world. The the outside world is is very much a part of of what's happening, and a threat as well. And then in the middle, of, or I don't I don't remember if it's the middle, but there is a shift at some point, and the shift happened with Samia listening to the singer. The I think she's Morgan. But her name is is Varda, the same name that the little girl has. She's named after the singer. And we know that this song will will upset the mother and that the mother does not want to listen to music anymore. And Samya is pushing the mother to listen to to this song on a tape. And the physical reaction that Alba has to the the, the listening of this beloved song that reminds her of the past, remembering the past through music helps her heal a little bit uh, from the deep grieving that she's going through. And there's a shift all of a sudden. This character, the mother, becomes more colorful. She takes off her veil, puts a headband, her hair is down, her clothes are more colorful, and her life becomes more colorful as well. So the sound to me was it was very much a part of, of telling the story. And at the end, there is a very, very touching part where Samia has her baby and rejects him at the first. She cannot get attached to this baby that she has to give up for adoption. But thanks to Alba, is able to nurse the baby. So there's this physical contact between mother and, and son. Hold the baby skin to skin. And there again, this is not this rejected little bundle, but actually a living, breathing little boy. And she sings him a song at the end. And that song is, is very much stream through her tears and the words of that song to me was a blessing that she was leaving on her infant son so yes the the sound work in this film was was um, very special to me and very much part of the narrative i was very impressed with that visual or framing sound economy in the same ways i i saw the exact same things these very tightly framed at most medium shots, but usually close-ups with a very short depth of field. So it's a very optically closed world. The background is is out of focus. I mean, you see that from the narrow streets of the Medinas when Samia is walking through them, the narrow strictures of the society in which these women live. It's very closed in. But it's also a, an opportunity. It's an opportunity by choosing to focus on one plane just a few feet from the camera um, while everything surrounding the head or the upper body is left blurry, to read the human face, what's going on in a person's mind, what feelings they're experiencing. And it's never always spelled, it's not always spelled out, like the scene you mentioned, Marie Laura, of a black who not, who's not able to sleep. We see her tossing and turning while the sound invades the violence out in the street. I really appreciated Tuzani's and her director of photography, Virginie Surdege's sociologist's eye, these shots, they're interested in processes, kneading the dough, uh, stretching the dough, cleaning the house, setting the table. Uh, There are shots of people that seem almost extraneous to the story, like the shot of the Berber woman, uh, the Amazigh woman who's got the tattoo on her forehead and is smoking. I I love these these inserts occasionally. (laughs) But the sound is crucial. And the same sound that invades the house from the outside, that porosity of of that space, that ambient sound space, also plays into that scene at the end when Samia is trying to avoid her natural maternal attachment and instinct to care for her baby. She can't escape the crying of the baby. 
And it's almost mm-hmm. oppressive. You can see that it's oppressive to her because she she doesn't want to to become too attached to that child. So the sound won't let her go. At a certain point, she gives in, and it's it's also a process. It it doesn't just happen immediately. Her opening up to this this beautiful boy that she's given life to, um, it takes her several minutes. Um, there's a it's probably a fifteen minute segment of the film near the end where there are so many shots of mother and child. Um, I was thinking in a, in a Christian iconographic tradition, the nursing Madonna, for example, but these images of, of maternal love. And I, I don't want to inflict too much of the, the European view of that, but um, as I was looking for some association and thinking what Western mm-hmm. viewers not accustomed to Moroccan films might think, that that came to mind, these beautiful images of, of, of a nursing child. I was going to point out something too, that um, fight over the, the audio cassette and Warda, the Algerian Rose, she was called, a singer born in France, of course, of Algerian descent and who died in Cairo, was very popular uh, throughout mm-hmm. the North African and Middle Eastern world, but also in Europe among Muslim communities there. That fight over the radio is really something that's crucial it reminds me of passages in uh, the Moroccan sociologist Fatima Mernissi's book, Dreams of Trespass, one of the most beautiful autobiographies mm-hmm. I've ever read about this woman, Fatima Mernissi, growing up in a harem in North Africa, in Morocco. And as a child, her mother and her sort of adoptive mothers in this uh, plural marriage context and aunts listening to the radio, one of the few ways that they could be attached to the outside world and playing roles and singing along with these famous singers. It's also reminiscent of a novelist, a very famous sort of the grandfather of Moroccan French language literature, Dries Schreiby's book, La Civilisation Ma Mère, or It's Civilization, mm-hmm. Mother, which tells this wonderful story of two sons uh, seeing their mother come to this sort of awakening, this consciousness that's political the self-awareness in her world and completely turning her world upside down overnight, returning to school, uh, learning about modernity, becoming this political activist. Um, And there are these moments in there where she connects with the world through radio and through sound. And so Mm -hmm. the radio and music like that seems to be this important motif in in North African uh, women's experience. Uh, And so I found that Mm -hmm. quite very well anchored in the culture and and other kinds of art and writing from that area. Very interesting. And you uh, mentioned this crossing of boundaries, and it feels that they they keep on crossing boundaries with each other in one way or of another. You talked as well about the, the women in society and their place, their link through the radio to society. There is a quote that that came back to my my mind when you said that Alba was not allowed to see her husband be buried. And she said, death does not belong to women. And Samia responded, few things belong to us. And so, yeah, we see this desire for more involvement in, in the society, but as well this reject of, of society towards women. I was fascinated by this as well. I actually wrote down that exchange between Abla and Samia to the death does not belong to women. I was also thinking about bodies, women's bodies. It's a film that shows an infant's body, but you have this young child, this girl, pre-adolescent girl, Warda. You have this young pregnant mother 
You see her belly uh, several times, uh, her pregnant shape, her pregnant form. And then you have Abla herself, this middle-aged woman who's thinking about her own body. And as she's resensitized to the world and to love, to feeling, maybe even passion, there's that really quiet uh, sequence where she um, takes off her, her nightgown and is just looking at herself in the mirror mm-hmm. and, um, and wondering, I think, you know, am, can I still be loved? Uh, what, what can I do in my life still, but in this embodied sense and quietly kind of curls up uh, on her bed, uh, looking in the mirror. Uh, these moments are so intimate, so delicate, and so delicately treated. I, uh, this was another moment of, of being moved for those specific experiences that women have at different stages of their, their lives, always marked, their bodies are marked by their change in, in life, maybe in ways mm-hmm. that men aren't quite in the same way. Mm-hmm. Very good observation, absolutely, and very poetically done. Um, I was, I was very, it was beautifully done. Um, there is a a part as well, a, a passage as well in the film about food. Oh, food is everywhere in this film, and they're always eating something or selling food or making food. And at some point, Samia, who is quite gifted in many different ways. Um, looks at Alba kneading her dough and she tells her, and it's another another way where she's crossing a boundary, right? She's very bold and very, very courageous in telling Alba, you don't know your dough. <laughs> and that was so, so like fearless. And Alba says, I've done this for years. I know what I'm doing. And she does. She's a very skillful baker. But Samia brings a feel to it. She says, you need to feel it as you need it. And all of a sudden, these two women are kneading the dough. And, and there again, this community that, that past generations are just re, retold in this very, very simple actions of kneading the dough together, making something that together that has been done for centuries was as well very touching to me um, in the way that women connect with each other and women help with each other and women need each other. Samia desperately needed Alba in her life Mm -hmm. and so did Alba because Alba's life was was changed by Samia's warmth and, and love. Absolutely. I have to tell you a few things. First of all, about food. Having traveled to Morocco several times, I can tell you that few cultures in the world that I've encountered have as much pride in their own gastronomy as the Moroccans. I remember meeting a Frenchman married to a Moroccan designer in one of my early trips. And he said, nobody other than the French talk more about their food than the Moroccans. And he said, he thinks that the Moroccans have a slight advantage over the French. Oh no. All right. We'll give them that. I love that though. And in fact, bread is central to that. You see, if you, if you're looking for it, you'll recognize if you if you understand Moroccan bread culture, several different breads, they're everyday breads, they're, they're hobs, the flat bread that's sort of square, that's made on a griddle that um, Abla makes every day, semen. And you see the little pita-like sandwiches, the batboot or togrift, I think it's called in, in a Berber language, tanazich. Harsha is this, this pan-fried, sweet or savory, savory semolina bread that's made in the shape of a disc. It's sort of like an English muffin uh, or almost like a biscuit, but it's made of semolina flour. It has this, has a, has a almost perfumed scent from the semolina and it's very common in the street. And these things are everyday breads um, that, are, that are made. But I wanted to pause for a second on 
the bread that Samia makes to sell for Abla. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Riziza, Riziza, and it's a kind of crepe because it's flat and made on this uh, on a griddle. I, I guess we would. I think it's referred to in English as a judge's turban. Uh, so you see that sort of round disc-like shape, and it's it's named after the twirled or twisted headdress of of many uh, Moroccans who are in the western part or on the Sahara, right? So yeah, that makes wrapping yeah, around the head, right? So it's sort of this yeah. long, almost fettuccine-like string. It's much longer than fettuccine, and it's oily. Uh, it's a very time-consuming kind of of bread. What's important though is that it's typically used for special occasions, like during uh, the month of Ramadan. But in particular, um, it's made at breakfast and drizzled in honey for the occasion of a wedding. Mm. And it's called a bride's breakfast uh, dish. Uh, And it's typically made by the older women in a young bride's life. So her aunts or her sisters Mm. or her grandmother. And then there's this breakfast the day after a wedding. They get together and they make this and they eat this together. And Samia makes it to show gratitude. Warda loves it. Samia is going to teach uh-huh. Warda how to make it. And I think that that's a crucial moment there because it ritualizes or it symbolically places Samia as an older sibling to this young girl that she's sort of mentoring. And Abla praises it in the end and admits this is better than machine made. But the, the, the point here is that's the sort of this particular dish is has a particular feminine food pleasure in its confection and its consumption. And it's part of this mm-hmm. female gastronomic economy of, mm-hmm. of women's sh- lives changing, but there being some kind of connection between the women uh, at this breakfast. And so I, I think that uh, Tuzani deftly picks up on, on this practice, this tradition, and all of those things for Moroccan are going to make it uh, much more meaningful to recognize. This is the special kind of treat and these women have the same kinds of legitimacy and relationships uh, that are celebrated in the culture through this particular kind of food. Beautiful. Yes, very well well said. Mark, anything more? To no, add? I feel like I've become a listener of this podcast, just learning from both of you. It's so interesting. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do really enjoy the ending because I feel like it ends perfectly. I don't want to give too much away, but there's this kind of lack of closure. That it's open-ended and there's a certain realism about it that, you know, as, as Sunny is leaving the home, she's still going to be in some ways at the mercy of, of these kind of forces, these political forces, these um, things that are acting on her. But it, in some ways it really kind of focuses the experience in the home itself. And, and you get to see how um, families regenerate, how these kind of relationships develop, how bonds are created in those beautiful kind of scenes inside the home. So I really enjoyed that. Oh, and I cannot help to um, in, interject here that I was hoping, oh, this is really bad of me, <laughs> but I was hoping for a Hollywood uh, ending. But of course, the Hollywood ending where uh, Alba marries the suitor and adopts the baby. I mean, in some ways, it would be too easy. And we can't let this film be too easy because if we want hearts to change, if we want laws to move ahead and and um, welcome these pregnant women in society and, and and their babies, then the film needs to end just the way it did. Absolutely, we cannot have a a happy, nice little tight package ending type. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on from the booth. 
Specialists and film lovers alike will offer insightful discussions of the film streaming at IC every week on our podcast. Please tune in. To get access to the film streaming at IC this semester, visit ic.byu.edu and follow the link on the splash page to sign up with your current BYUnet ID. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We're solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here, as we do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, and our sound engineer, Jojo Ekstrom Spratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Until next week, keep streaming.